Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 3, 4, and 5, from the Jewels of Obar. Another Tarzan story from Edgar Rice Burroughs. And now, our story. Chapter 3, The Call of the Jungle. Moved by these vague yet all-powerful urgings, the ape-man lay awake one night in the little thorn boma that protected, in a way, his party from the depredations of the great carnivora of the jungle. A single warrior stood sleepy guard beside the fire that yellow eyes out of the darkness beyond the camp made imperative. The moans and the coughing of the big cats mingled with the myriad noises of the lesser denizens of the jungle to fan the savage flame in the breast of this savage English lord. He tossed upon his bed of grasses, sleepless, for an hour, and then he rose, noiseless as a wraith, and while the waziri's back was turned, vaulted the boma wall in the face of the flaming eyes, swung silently into a great tree, and was gone. For a time, in sheer exuberance of animal spirit, he raced swiftly through the middle terrace, "'swinging perilously across wide spans "'from one jungle giant to the next. "'And then he clambered upward to the swaying, "'lesser boughs of the upper terrace, "'where the moon shone full upon him, "'and the air was stirred by little breezes, "'and death lurked ready in each frail branch. "'Here he paused and raised his face to Goro, the moon. "'With uplifted arm he stood, "'the cry of the bull ape quivering upon his lips. "'Yet he remained silent, "'lest he arouse his faithful waziri, "'who were all too familiar "'with the hideous challenge of their master. "'And then he went on more slowly, "'and with greater stealth and caution, "'for now Tarzan of the apes was seeking a kill. "'Down to the ground he came "'in the utter blackness of the close-set bowls "'and the overhanging verdure of the jungle. "'He stooped from time to time "'and put his nose close to the earth.' He sought and found a wide game trail, and at last his nostrils were rewarded with the scent of the fresh spoor of Bara, the deer. Tarzan's mouth watered, and a low growl escaped his patrician lips. Sloughed from him was the last vestige of artificial caste. Once again he was the primeval hunter, the first man, the highest caste type of the human race. Upwind he followed the elusive spoor with a sense of perception so transcending that of ordinary man as to be inconceivable to us. Through countercurrents of the heavy stench of meat-eaters he traced the trail of Bara. The sweet and cloying stink of Horta, the boar, could not drown his quarry's scent. The permeating, mellow musk of the deer's foot. Presently the body scent of the deer told Tarzan that his prey was close at hand. It sent him into the trees again, into the lower terrace, where he could watch the ground below and catch with ears and nose the first intimation of actual contact with his quarry. Nor was it long before the ape-man came upon Bara standing alert at the edge of a moon-bathed clearing. Noiselessly Tarzan crept through the trees until he was directly over the deer. In the ape-man's right hand was the long hunting knife of his father, and in his heart the bloodlust of the carnivore. Just for an instant he poised above the unsuspecting Bara, and then he launched himself downward upon the sleek back. The impact of his weight carried the deer to its knees, and before the animal could regain its feet, the knife had found its heart. As Tarzan rose upon the body of his kill to scream forth his hideous victory cry into the face of the moon, 
the wind carried to his nostrils something which froze him to statuesque immobility and silence. His savage eyes blazed into the direction from which the wind had borne down the warning to him, and a moment later the grasses at one side of the clearing parted, and Numa, the lion, strode majestically into view. His yellow-green eyes were fastened upon Tarzan as he halted just within the clearing and glared enviously at the successful hunter, for Numa had no luck this night. From the lips of the ape-man broke a rumbling growl of warning. Numa answered, but he did not advance. Instead, he stood waving his tail gently to and fro, and presently Tarzan squatted upon his kill and cut a generous portion from a hind quarter. Numa eyed him with growing resentment and rage as, between mouthfuls, the ape-man growled out his savage warnings. Now this particular lion had never before come in contact with Tarzan of the apes, and he was much mystified. Here was the appearance and the scent of a man-thing, and Numa had tasted of human flesh, and learned that though not the most palatable, it was certainly by far the easiest to secure. Yet there was that in the bestial growls of the strange creature, which reminded him of formidable antagonists, and gave him pause, while his hunger and the odor of the hot flesh of Bara goaded him almost to madness. Always Tarzan watched him, guessing what was passing in the little brain of the carnivore, and how well it was that he did watch him, for at last Numa could stand it no longer. His tail shot suddenly erect, and at the same instant, the wary ape-man, knowing all too well what the signal portended, grasped the remainder of the deer's hind quarter between his teeth, and leaped into a nearby tree as Numa charged him with all the speed and a sufficient semblance of the weight of an express train. Tarzan's retreat was no indication that he felt fear. Jungle life is ordered along different lines than ours, and different standards prevail. Had Tarzan been famished, he would, doubtless, have stood his ground and met the lion's charge. He had done the thing before upon more than one occasion, just as in the past he had charged lions himself. But tonight he was far from famished and in the hind quarter he had carried off with him was more raw flesh than he could eat. Yet it was with no equanimity that he looked down upon Numa rending the flesh of Tarzan's kill. The presumption of this strange Numa must be punished, and forthwith Tarzan set out to make life miserable for the big cat. Close by were many trees bearing large hard fruits, and to one of these the ape-man swung with the agility of a squirrel. "'then commenced a bombardment "'which brought forth earth-shaking roars from Numa. "'One after another, "'as rapidly as he could gather and hurl them, "'Tarzan pelted the hard fruit down upon the lion. "'It was impossible for the tawny cat to eat "'under that hail of missiles. "'He could but roar and growl and dodge, "'and eventually he was driven away entirely "'from the carcass of Bara, the deer. "'He went roaring and resentful, "'but in the very center of the clearing,' His voice was suddenly hushed, and Tarzan saw the great head lower and flatten out, the body crouch, and the long tail quiver, as the beast slunk cautiously toward the trees upon the opposite side. Immediately Tarzan was alert. He lifted his head and sniffed the slow, jungle breeze. What was it that had attracted Numa's attention and taken him soft-footed and silent away from the scene of his discomfiture? Just as the lion disappeared among the trees beyond the clearing, Tarzan caught upon the down-coming wind the explanation of his new interest. 
the scent spore of man was wafted strongly to the sensitive nostrils. Catching the remainder of the deer's hind quarter in the crotch of a tree, the ape-man wiped his greasy palms upon his naked thighs and swung off in pursuit of Numa. A broad, well-beaten elephant path led into the forest from the clearing. Parallel to this slunk Numa, while above him Tarzan moved through the trees, the shadow of a wraith. The savage cat and the savage man saw Numa's quarry almost simultaneously, though both had known before it came within the vision of their eyes that it was a black man. Their sensitive nostrils had told them this much, and Tarzan's had told him that the scent spore was that of a stranger, old and a male, for race and sex and age each has its own distinctive scent. It was an old man that made his way alone to the gloomy jungle, a wrinkled, dried-up, little old man, hideously scarred and tattooed and strangely garbed, with the skin of a hyena about his shoulders and the dried head mounted upon his gray pate. Tarzan recognized the earmarks of the witch-doctor and awaited Numa's charge with a feeling of pleasurable anticipation, for the ape-man had no love for witch-doctors. But in the instant that Numa did charge, the white man suddenly recalled that the lion had stolen his kill a few minutes before, and that revenge is sweet. The first intimation the black man had that he was in danger was the crash of twigs as Numa charged through the bushes into the game trail not twenty yards behind him. Then he turned to see a huge black-maned lion racing toward him, and even as he turned, Numa seized him. At the same instant the ape-man dropped from the overhanging limb full upon the lion's back, and as he alighted he plunged his knife into the tawny side behind the left shoulder, tangled the fingers of his right hand in the long mane, buried his teeth in Numa's neck, and wound his powerful legs about the beast's torso. With a roar of pain and rage, Numa reared up and fell backward upon the ape-man, but still the mighty man-thing clung to his hold, and repeatedly the long knife plunged rapidly into his side. Over and over rolled Numa, the lion, clawing and biting at the air, roaring and growling horribly in savage attempt to reach the thing upon its back. More than once was Tarzan almost brushed from his hold. He was battered and bruised and covered with blood from Numa and dirt from the trail, yet not for an instant did he lessen the ferocity of his mad attack nor his grim hold upon the back of his antagonist. To have loosened for an instant his grip there would have been to bring him within reach of those tearing talons or rending fangs, and have ended forever the grim career of this jungle-bred English lord. Where he had fallen beneath the spring of the lion, the witch-doctor lay, torn and bleeding, unable to drag himself away, and watched the terrific battle between the two lords of the jungle. His sunken eyes glittered, and his wrinkled lips moved over toothless gums as he mumbled weird incantations to the demons of his cult. For a time he felt no doubt as to the outcome. The strange white man must certainly succumb to terrible Simba. Whoever heard of a lone man armed only with a knife slaying so mighty a beast? Yet, presently, the old black man's eyes went wider, and he commenced to have his doubts and misgivings. What wonderful sort of creature was this that battled with Simba and held his own despite the mighty muscles of the king of the beasts? And slowly there dawned in those sunken eyes, gleaming so brightly from the scarred and wrinkled face, the light of a dawning recollection. Gropingly backward into the past reached the fingers of memory, until at last they seized upon a faint picture 
faded and yellow with the passing years. It was the picture of a lithe, white-skinned youth swinging through the trees in company with a band of huge apes. And the old eyes blinked, and a great fear came into them. The superstitious fear of one who believes in ghosts and spirits and demons. And came the time once more when the witch-doctor no longer doubted the outcome of the duel. Yet his first judgment was reversed. For now he knew that the jungle god would slay Simba, and the old black was even more terrified of his own impending fate at the hands of the victor than he had been by the sure and sudden death which the triumphant lion would have meted out to him. He saw the lion weaken from loss of blood. He saw the mighty limbs tremble and stagger, and at last he saw the beast sink down to rise no more. He saw the forest god or demon rise from the vanquished foe and placing a foot upon the still quivering carcass, raise his face to the moon and bay out a hideous cry that froze the ebbing blood in the veins of the witch-doctor. We'll return with Chapter 4 right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 4, Prophecy and Fulfillment. Then Tarzan turned his attention to the man. He had not slain Numa to save the black man. He had merely done it in revenge upon the lion. But now that he saw the old man lying helpless and dying before him, something akin to pity touched his savage heart. In his youth, he would have slain the witch-doctor without the slightest compunction. But civilization had had its softening effect upon him, even as it does upon nations and races which it touches though it had not yet gone far enough with Tarzan to render him either cowardly or effeminate. He saw an old man suffering and dying, and he stooped and felt of his wounds and stanched the flow of blood. "'Who are you?' asked the old man in a trembling voice. "'I am Tarzan, Tarzan of the apes,' replied the ape-man, and not without a greater touch of pride than he would have said, "'I am John Clayton, Lord Greystoke.' The witch-doctor shook convulsively and closed his eyes. When he opened them again, there was in them a resignation to whatever horrible fate awaited him at the hands of this feared demon of the woods. "'Why do you not kill me?' he asked. "'Why should I kill you?' inquired Tarzan. "'You have not harmed me. and anyway, you are already dying. Numa the lion has killed you.' "'You would not kill me?' "'Surprise and incredulity were in the tones of the quavering old voice. "'I would save you if I could,' replied Tarzan. "'But that cannot be done. "'Why did you think I would kill you?' "'For a moment the old man was silent. "'When he spoke it was evidently after some little effort to muster his courage. "'I knew you of old,' he said, "'when you ranged to the jungle in the country of Mabanga, the chief.' I was already a witch-doctor when you slew Kalanga and the others, and when you robbed our huts and our poison pot. At first I did not remember you, but at last I did. The white-skinned ape that lived with the hairy apes and made life miserable in the village of Mabanga, the chief, the forest god, the Monongo Kiwati, for whom we set food outside our gates, and who came and ate it. Tell me before I die, are you man or devil? Tarzan laughed. "'I am man,' he said. The old fellow sighed and shook his head. "'You have tried to save me from Simba,' he said. "'For that I shall reward you. 
"'I am a great witch-doctor. "'Listen to me, white man. "'I see bad days ahead of you. "'It is writ in my own blood, "'which I have smeared upon my palm. "'A god greater even than you "'will rise up and strike you down. "'Turn back, Manungo Kiwati. "'Turn back, before it is too late. "'Danger lies ahead of you, "'and danger lurks behind. "'But greater is the danger before.' "'I see—' "'He paused and drew a long, gasping breath. "'Then he crumpled into a little, wrinkled heap and died. "'Tarzad wondered what else he had seen. "'It was very late when the ape-man re-entered his boma "'and lay down among his black warriors. "'None had seen him go, and none saw him return. "'He thought about the warning of the old witch-doctor "'before he fell asleep.' "'and he thought of it again after he awoke. "'But he did not turn back, for he was unafraid. "'Though had he known what lay in store "'for one he loved most in the whole world, "'he would have flown through the trees to her side "'and allowed the gold of Opar to remain forever hidden "'in its forgotten storehouse. "'Behind him that morning another white man "'pondered something he had heard during the night, "'and very nearly did he give up his project "'and turn back upon his trail. "'It was Werper,' the murderer, who, in the still of the night, had heard far away upon the trail ahead of him a sound that had filled his cowardly soul with terror, a sound such as he had never before heard in all his life, nor dreamed that such a frightful thing could emanate from the lungs of a God-created creature. He had heard the victory cry of the bull ape as Tarzan had screamed it forth into the face of Goro, the moon, and he had trembled then and hidden his face, and now in the broad light of a new day he trembled again as he recalled it, and would have turned back from the nameless danger the echo of that frightful sound seemed to portend. Had he not stood in even greater fear of Achmed Zek, his master. And so Tarzan of the Apes forged steadily ahead toward Opar's ruined ramparts, and behind him slunk Werper, jackal-like, and only God knew what lay in store for each. At the edge of the desolate valley, overlooking the golden domes and minarets of Bopar, Tarzan halted. By night he would go alone to the treasure vault, reconnoitering, for he had determined that caution should mark his every move upon this expedition. With the coming of night he set forth, and Werper, who had scaled the cliffs alone behind the ape-man's party, and hidden to the day among the rough boulders of the mountaintop, slunk stealthily after him. The boulder-strewn plain between the valley's edge and the mighty granite kopje, outside the city's walls, where lay the entrance to the passageway leading to the treasure vault, gave the Belgian ample cover as he followed Tarzan toward Opar. He saw the giant ape-man swing himself nimbly up the face of the great rock. Werper, clawing fearfully through the perilous ascent, sweating in terror, almost palsied by fear, but spurred on by avarice, following upward, "'until at last he stood upon the summit of the rocky hill. "'Tarzan was nowhere in sight. "'For a time, Werper hid behind one of the lesser boulders "'that were scattered over the top of the hill. "'But seeing or hearing nothing of the Englishman, "'he crept from his place of concealment "'to undertake a systematic search of his surroundings, "'in the hope that he might discover "'the location of the treasure in ample time "'to make his escape before Tarzan returned. "'For it was the Belgian's desire "'merely to locate the gold.' that, after Tarzan had departed, he might come in safety with his followers 
"'and carry away as much as he could transport. "'He found the narrow cleft leading downward "'into the heart of the kopje "'along well-worn granite steps. "'He advanced quite to the dark mouth of the tunnel "'into which the runway disappeared. "'But here he halted, fearing to enter, "'lest he meet Tarzan returning. "'The ape-man, far ahead of him, "'roped his way along the rocky passage "'until he came to the ancient wooden door. "'A moment later he stood within the treasure-chamber, "'where, ages since, "'long dead hands had ranged the lofty rows "'of precious ingots for the rulers of that great continent "'which now lies submerged beneath the waters of the Atlantic. "'No sound broke the stillness of the subterranean vault. "'There was no evidence that another had discovered "'the forgotten wealth since the last ape-man had visited its hiding-place.' Satisfied, Tarzan turned and retraced his steps toward the summit of the kopje. Werper, from the concealment of a jutting granite boulder, watched him pass up from the shadows of the stairway and advance toward the edge of the hill which faced the rise of the valley where the Waziri awaited the signal of their master. Then Werper, slipping stealthily from his hiding place, dropped into the somber darkness of the entrance and disappeared. Tarzan, halting upon the Kopje's edge, raised his voice in the thunderous roar of a lion. Twice at regular intervals he repeated the call, standing in attentive silence for several minutes after the echoes of the third call had died away. And then, from far across the valley, faintly, came an answering roar, once, twice, thrice. Basuli, the Waziri chieftain, had heard and replied. Tarzan again made his way toward the treasure vault, knowing that in a few minutes his waziri would be with him, ready to bear away another fortune in the strangely shaped golden ingots of Opar. In the meantime, he would carry as much of the precious metal to the summit of the kopje as he could. Six trips he made in the five hours before Basuli reached the kopje, and at the end of that time he had transported forty-eight ingots to the edge of the great boulder, carrying upon each trip a load which might well have staggered two ordinary men, yet his giant frame showed no evidence of fatigue as he helped to raise his Ebon warriors to the hilltop with the rope that had been brought for the purpose. Six times he had returned to the treasure chamber, and six times Werper, the Belgian, had cowered in the black shadows at the far end of the long vault. Once again came the ape-man, and this time there came with him fifty fighting men, "'turning porters for love of the only creature in the world "'who might command of them their fierce and haughty natures "'such menial service. Fifty-two more ingots passed out of the vaults, "'making the total of one hundred, "'which Tarzan intended taking away with him. "'As the last of the Waziri filed from the chamber, "'Tarzan turned back for a last glimpse of the fabulous wealth "'upon which his two inroads had made no appreciable impression.' Before he extinguished the single candle he had brought with him for the purpose, and the flickering light of which had cast the first alleviating rays into the impenetrable darkness of the buried chamber that it had known for the countless ages since it had lain forgotten of man, Tarzan's mind reverted to that first occasion upon which he had entered the treasure vault, coming upon it by chance as he fled from the pits beneath the temple, where he had been hidden by La, the high priestess of the sun worshippers. He recalled the scene within the temple where he had lain stretched upon the sacrificial altar, while La, with high-raised dagger, stood above him, and the rows of priests and priestesses awaited, in the ecstatic hysteria of fanaticism, the first gush of their victim's warm blood, 
that they might feel their golden goblets and drink to the glory of their flaming god. The brutal and bloody interruption by Tha, the mad priest, passed vividly before the ape-man's recollective eyes. The flight of the votaries before the insane bloodlust of the hideous creature, the brutal attack upon La, and his own part of the grim tragedy, when he had battled with the infuriated Oparian and left him dead at the feet of the priestess he would have profaned. This and much more passed through Tarzan's memory as he stood gazing at the long tiers of dull yellow metal. He wondered if La still ruled the temples of the ruined city whose crumbling walls rose upon the very foundations about him. Had she finally been forced into a union with one of her grotesque priests? It seemed a hideous fate, indeed, for one so beautiful. With a shake of his head, Tarzan stepped to the flickering candle, extinguished its feeble rays, and turned toward the exit. Behind him, the spy waited for him to be gone. He had learned the secret for which he had come, and now he could return at his leisure to his waiting followers, bring them to the treasure vault, and carry away all the gold that they could stagger under. The Waziri had reached the outer end of the tunnel, and were winding upward toward the fresh air and the welcome starlight of the Kapji's summit, before Tarzan shook off the detaining hand of reverie and started slowly after them. Once again, and he thought, for the last time, he closed the massive door of the treasure room. In the darkness behind him, Werper rose and stretched his cramped muscles. He stretched forth a hand and lovingly caressed a golden ingot on the nearest tier. He raised it from his immemorial resting place and weighed it in his hands. He clutched it to his bosom in an ecstasy of avarice. Tarzan dreamed of the happy homecoming which lay before him, of dear arms around his neck and a soft cheek pressed to his. But there rose to dispel that dream the memory of the old witch-doctor and his warning. And then, in the span of a few brief seconds, the hopes of both these men were shattered. The one forgot even his greed in the panic of terror. The other was plunged into total forgetfulness of the past by a jagged fragment of rock which gashed a deep cut upon his head. Next Chapter Vibe The Altar of the Flaming God it was at the moment that Tarzan turned from the closed door to pursue his way to the outer world. The thing came without warning. One instant, all was quiet and stability. The next, and the world rocked. The tortured sides of the narrow passageway split and crumbled. Great blocks of granite, dislodged from the ceiling, tumbled into the narrow way, choking it, and the walls bent inward upon the wreckage. Beneath the blow of a fragment of the roof, Tarzan staggered back against the door to the treasure room, his weight pushed it open, and his body rolled inward upon the floor. In the great apartment where the treasure lay, less damage was wrought by the earthquake. A few ingots toppled from the higher tiers. A single piece of the rocky ceiling splintered off and crashed downward to the floor, and the walls cracked, though they did not collapse. There was but the single shock. No other followed to complete the damage undertaken by the first. Werper, thrown to his length by the suddenness and violence of the disturbance, staggered to his feet when he found himself unhurt. Groping his way toward the far end of the chamber, he sought the candle which Tarzan had left stuck in its own wax upon the protruding end of an ingot. By striking numerous matches, the Belgian at last found what he sought, and when, a moment later, the sickly rays relieved the Stygian darkness about him, he breathed a nervous sigh of relief 
for the impenetrable gloom had accentuated the terrors of his situation. As they became accustomed to the light, the man turned his eyes toward the door. His one thought now was of escape from this frightful tomb, and as he did so he saw the body of the naked giant lying stretched upon the floor just within the doorway. Werper drew back in sudden fear of detection, but a second glance convinced him that the Englishman was dead. From a great gash in the man's head, a pool of blood had collected upon the concrete floor. Quickly the Belgian leaped over the prostrate form of his erstwhile host, and without a thought of succor for the man in whom, for aught he knew, life still remained, he bolted for the passageway in safety. But his renewed hopes were soon dashed. Just beyond the doorway he found the passage completely clogged and choked by impenetrable masses of shattered rock. Once more he turned and re-entered the treasure vault. Taking the candle from its place, he commenced a systematic search of the apartment. Nor had he gone far before he discovered another door in the opposite end of the room, a door which gave upon creaking hinges to the weight of his body. Beyond the door lay another narrow passageway. Along this Werper made his way, ascending a flight of stone steps to another corridor twenty feet above the level of the first. The flickering candle lighted the way before him, and a moment later he was thankful for the possession of this crude and antiquated luminant, which, a few hours before, he might have looked upon with contempt, for it showed him, just in time, a yawning pit, apparently terminating the tunnel he was traversing. Before him was a circular shaft. He held the candle above it and peered downward. Below him, at a great distance, he saw the light reflected back from the surface of a pool of water. He had come upon a well. He raised the candle above his head and peered across the black void, and there upon the opposite side he saw the continuation of the tunnel. But how was he to span the gulf? As he stood there measuring the distance to the opposite side, and wondering if he dared venture so great a leap, there broke suddenly upon his startled ears a piercing scream which diminished gradually until it ended in a series of dismal moans. The voice seemed partly human, yet so hideous that it might well have emanated from the tortured throat of a lost soul, writhing in the fires of hell. The Belgian shuddered and looked fearfully upward, for the scream had seemed to come from above him. As he looked, he saw an opening far overhead, on a patch of sky pinked with brilliant stars. His half-formed intention to call for help was expunged by the terrifying cry. Where such a voice lived, no human creatures could dwell. He dared not reveal himself to whatever inhabitants dwelt in the place above him. He cursed himself for a fool that he had ever embarked upon such a mission. He wished himself safely back in the camp of Ahmed Zek, and would almost have embraced an opportunity to give himself up to the military authorities of the Congo, if by so doing he might be rescued from the frightful predicament in which he now was. He listened fearfully, but the cry was not repeated, and at last, spurred to desperate means, he gathered himself for the leap across the chasm. Going back twenty paces, he took a running start, and at the edge of the well, leaped upward and outward in an attempt to gain the opposite side. In his hand, he clutched the sputtering candle, and as he took the leap, the rush of air extinguished it. In utter darkness he flew through space, clutching outward for a hold should his feet miss the invisible ledge. He struck the edge of the door of the opposite terminus of the rocky tunnel with his knees, 
slipped backward, clutched desperately for a moment, and at last hung half within and half without the opening. But he was safe. For several minutes he dared not move, but clung, weak and sweating, where he lay. At last, cautiously, he drew himself well within the tunnel, and again he lay at full length upon the floor, fighting to regain control of his shattered nerves. When his knees struck the edge of the tunnel, he had dropped the candle. Presently, hoping against hope that it had fallen upon the floor of the passageway, rather than back into the depths of the well, he rose upon all fours and commenced a diligent search for the little tallow cylinder, which now seemed infinitely more precious to him than all the fabulous wealth of the hoarded ingots of Opar. And when, at last, he found it, he clasped it to him and sank back sobbing and exhausted. For many minutes he lay trembling and broken, but finally he drew himself to a sitting posture, and taking a match from his pocket, lighted the stump of the candle which remained to him. With the light he found it easier to regain control of his nerves, and presently he was again making his way along the tunnel in search of an avenue of escape. The horrid cry that had come down to him from above to the ancient well-shaft still haunted him, so that he trembled in terror at even the sounds of his own cautious advance. He had gone forward but a short distance, when, to his chagrin, a wall of masonry barred his further progress, closing the tunnel completely from top to bottom and from side to side. What could it mean? Werper was an educated and intelligent man. His military training had taught him to use his mind for the purpose for which it was intended. A blind tunnel such as this was senseless. It must continue beyond the wall. Someone, at some time in the past, had it blocked for an unknown purpose of his own. The man fell to examining the masonry by the light of his candle. To his delight he discovered that the thin blocks of hewn stone of which it was constructed were fitted in loosely without mortar or cement. He tugged upon one of them, and to his joy found that it was easily removable. One after another he pulled out the blocks until he had opened an aperture large enough to admit his body. Then he crawled through into a large, low chamber. Across this another door barred his way, but this, too, gave before his efforts, for it was not barred. A long, dark corridor showed before him, but before he had followed it far, his candle burned down until it scorched his fingers. With an oath he dropped it to the floor, where it sputtered for a moment, and then went out. Now he was in total darkness, and again terror rode heavily astride his neck. What further pitfalls and dangers lay ahead he could not guess, but that he was as far as ever from liberty he was quite willing to believe, so depressing his utter absence of light to one in unfamiliar surroundings. Slowly he groped his way along, feeling with his hands upon the tunnel's walls, and cautiously with his feet ahead of him upon the floor before he could take a single forward step. How long he crept on thus he could not guess, but at last, feeling that the tunnel's length was interminable, and exhausted by his efforts, by terror and loss of sleep, he determined to lie down and rest before proceeding further. When he awoke there was no change in the surrounding blackness. He might have slept a second or a day. He could not know. But that he had slept for some time was attested by the fact that he felt refreshed and hungry. Again he commenced his groping advance, but this time he had gone but a short distance when he emerged into a room, 
which was lighted through an opening in the ceiling, from which a flight of concrete steps led downward to the floor of the chamber. Above him, through the aperture, Werper could see sunlight glancing from massive columns, which were twined about by clinging vines. He listened, but he heard no sound other than the soughing of the wind through leafy branches, the hoarse cries of birds, and the chattering of monkeys. Boldly he ascended the stairway, to find himself in a circular court. Just before him stood a stone altar, stained with rusty brown discolorations. At the time, Werper gave no thought to an explanation of these stains. Later, their origin became all too hideously apparent to him. Beside the opening in the floor, just behind the altar, through which he had entered the court from the subterranean chamber below, the Belgian discovered several doors leading from the enclosure upon the level of the floor. Above, encircling the courtyard, was a series of open balconies. Monkeys scampered about the deserted ruins, and gaily-plumaged birds flitted in and out among the columns and the galleries far above, but no sign of human presence was discernible. Werper felt relieved. He sighed, as though a great weight had been lifted from his shoulders. He took a step toward one of the exits, and then he halted, wide-eyed in astonishment and terror, for almost at the same instant a dozen doors opened in the courtyard wall, and a horde of frightful men rushed in upon him. They were the priests of the flaming god of Obhar, the same shaggy, knotted, hideous little men who had dragged Jane Clayton to the sacrificial altar at this very spot years before. Their long arms, their short and crooked legs, their close-set evil eyes, and their low, receding foreheads gave them a bestial appearance that sent a qualm of paralyzing fright through the shaken nerves of the Belgium. With a scream he turned to flee back into the lesser terrors of the gloomy corridors and apartments from which he had just emerged, but the frightful men anticipated his intentions. They blocked the way, they seized him, and though he fell, groveling upon his knees before them, begging for his life, they bound him and hurled him to the floor of the inner temple. The rest was but a repetition of what Tarzan and Jane Clayton had passed through. The priestesses came, and with them La, the high priestess. Werper was raised and laid across the altar. Cold sweat exuded from his every pore as La raised the cruel, sacrificial knife above him. The death chant fell upon his tortured ears. His staring eyes wandered to the golden goblets from which the hideous votaries would soon quench their inhuman thirst in his own warm life-blood. He wished that he might be granted the brief respite of unconsciousness before the final plunge of the keen blade. And then there was a frightful roar that sounded almost in his ears. The high priestess lowered her dagger. Her eyes went wide in horror. The priestesses, her votaresses, "'screamed and pled madly toward the exits. "'The priests roared out their rage and terror "'according to the temper of their courage. "'Werper strained his neck about "'to catch a sight of the cause of their panic, "'and when, at last he saw it, "'he too went cold in dread, "'for what his eyes beheld "'was the figure of a huge lion "'standing in the corner of the temple, "'and already a single victim "'lay mangled beneath his cruel paws. "'Again, the lord of the wilderness roared, turning his baleful glaze upon the altar. La staggered forward, reeled, and fell across Werper in a swoon. Thanks for joining us for chapters 3 through 5 
of the Jewels of Opar. Here at 1001 Stories for the Road. Hope you're enjoying the story. We've had a lot of reviews for 1001 Stories for the Road, and I wanted to share a few with you. The first one, great podcast. Five stars. John does a great job reading these adventure stories, as well as picking the stories, I'd say. This has become my favorite thing to listen to while walking, driving, and just relaxing. Keep up the great work, John. I'm currently enjoying The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Job well done. That one from Andy Realty, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one. John Knows Stories. Five stars. John's reading of this great mystery book is done with the same enthusiasm that makes me want to listen to all his stories. I feel like John understands what makes a story great, and he reads it as it should be read. I don't need clever voices for each different character, and I personally don't like music or lots of sound effects in the background. It's his tone and the eagerness to share the story that make his reading so special. He does distinguish the voices to make it easier to follow, but it's the pacing I enjoy. He reads slow enough to be clear, but fast enough to keep the story moving. His inflections, in my opinion, are those of someone who really understands what makes a story interesting. John hopes that we enjoy his stories, but I can tell he enjoys them too, and that makes the best kind of reader. I can't wait to see what story is next on 1001 Stories for the Road, <laughs> and here it is. In the meantime, I'm listening to The Lost World from a little while back in the 1001 Sherlock Holmes and the Best of Arthur Conan Doyle. Another good story. R. Jopin's Apple Podcast U.S. And R. Jopin's thanks for a great review. And now you know, The Jewels of Opar is our next story. And yeah, I'm enjoying this one a lot. <laughs> Hope you're caught up by now and you're enjoying it too. Thanks for the reviews, everyone. We appreciate them very, very, very much. And we appreciate you sharing our show with others. New episodes come from 1001 Stories for the Road every Sunday at noon Eastern Time. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll be back soon.